Our scripture this morning is from 1 Timothy. Would you please stand? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We making our second foray into chapter 3. And, and once again, for you doubters, uh, I plan on hitting uh, more than one verse today. So, I made it last time, didn't I? So, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13, the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Let me ask you, can unworthiness lead to confidence? Can unworthiness lead to confidence? I'm particularly thinking of believers who know that they are unworthy to serve God. Will awareness of that fact discourage them? Or is it possible that awareness of their unworthiness can help them develop confidence in serving God? So how should we think biblically about this? First, we must remember that none of us are in ourselves worthy to serve God. Second, we should look to what Scripture provides us in examples of people's lives who have accomplished a lot serving the Lord faithfully. But they accomplished so much not because they were unusually gifted, but because they embraced 
two things. They embraced their own weakness. They, they understood it and accepted it. But they also embraced the power of God's grace that made them strong in their weakness. Paul provides his example for us here in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. He shows us that believers should be encouraged knowing that God puts unworthy people into His service. Why? Why does He put unworthy people into His service? So that His wisdom and unfathomable riches are prominently displayed through His church. It is not this that God says, you know, I'm going to use these unworthy people to serve me because that's that's all I've got to work with. God could have created those that had not fallen in sin and they never would fall in sin. and Or He could say, oh, I'm just going to work through the holy angels. But in His wisdom, He didn't choose to do that. He knew that that was not the best way to display His riches and His wisdom. He determined by His own wisdom that the best way to display His glory and all of that was to do it through unworthy servants like you and me and to do it through an organization that is filled with nothing but unworthy servants, the church. So where we're at here in Ephesians 3 is that in in the first 13 verses, Paul is encouraging the Ephesians with the greatness of God's power, how he works through people like us, through this church, to display his glory. So he's encouraging them. And we saw last time that in verses 1 through 7 that in including the Gentiles into the church, had previously been a mystery. That was something that he didn't talk about in Old Testament times. In the Old Testament Scriptures, we don't find that the Gentiles, as Gentiles, will join the people of God. Because under the, old, under the law, they had to become a Jew first. And now they do not. And then, so Paul, picking up on what he said there in verse 7, that he was made a minister to, to reveal this mystery... He goes on to share his example. He says that or we find that Paul was commissioned to reveal this mystery by preaching the gospel. So we're in the second half of Paul's digression. You remember in chapter 3, verse 1, after all of that glorious truth in chapter 2, where he was <clears throat> telling us about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into the church, and what he was doing is making for himself a dwelling place. We become that dwelling place. And it is so glorious that what Paul does is he's moved to prayer and praise. And so we find him starting out. So if you'd follow with me in Ephesians 3, verse 1, and we'll see that. But we'll see him put his prayer on pause. So he says in verse 3, thinking about what he just said in chapter 2, that glorious truth. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's like, okay, wait, stop. We, we, I have to tell you more. We've got more theology I need to go into here because before I, I get back to my prayer and praise. 
Okay? And so then he goes on with his digression. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation that was made known to me, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. They're talking about the Old Testament times. As it has now, in New Testament times, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, and this is what the mystery that he's been talking about there in chapter 2 and now in, in chapter 3. This is the mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And then to start us in the second half of his digression for today, Verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So what Paul does in the, the first two verses here, verses 8 and 9, is he calls attention to these two aspects of his ministry, the ministry that he was given by the Lord. And as we break that down, the first part of that, the first aspect of his ministry is this. Though unworthy, Paul was given grace to preach the riches of Christ. Though unworthy, Paul was given grace to preach the riches of Christ. Let's look again at verse 8. To me. And, and I want you to sense here his feelings of unworthiness and, more importantly, amazement that God would do this. To me... The very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And where his confidence is going to come from, because, you know, when we think the way that the world talks, or the way we naturally think, is that, well, you know, don't think about how unworthy you are. We need, you know, this self-help and we need to build ourselves up and so that I'll, I'll have the confidence. And, and really it's based on a false hope and based often on lies. What he's, say, what he's basing his confidence on, we're going to see, it is that grace that was given to him. You see, the whole point of all this is that we should not trust in what we suppose to be our own strength because we really don't have any on, in ourselves. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But in Christ, we can do everything. Whatever He has called us to do. And that's because He gives us His grace. So Paul was absolutely amazed that God would give him the responsibility and the ability to carry out this ministry. To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He, he didn't feel like he deserved to be selected. And, and we read... Just a little bit ago in First Timothy 1, and there's other passages where Paul, you find him regularly saying, you know, I don't, I don't deserve what I've been called to. And we're going to talk about that. So he's surprised by that. But it doesn't pull him down, and that's what we're going to try to get through to us today. And he first compares himself to all saints. There's places where he, he compares himself to the other apostles. Um, and he says, you know, I'm not even fit to be an apostle. 
And But here he's comparing himself to, to all saints. So he says, you pick whatever saint you want, and you can pick the, the saint you think is the lowest on the totem pole, and they beat me. They outdo me. That's his perspective. Why did he feel that way? Well, in other passages, and it's in, in his mind here, but in other passages he recalls the sins that he committed before he was saved. He thinks about how he blasphemed Christ, how he persecuted Christ by persecuting Christ's church, his body. And when he thinks about how he imprisoned believers, and some of them, as a result, were put to death, that affected him deeply. And he thought about, man, I do not deserve to be used of God. He was also aware that he was still a great sinner even after he was saved. Uh, what we read earlier, Gary led us through in First Timothy 1, he called himself, not I was, but I am the chief of sinners. Romans 7, you have that, the second half of the chapter where he, he goes through that and, and he walks us through the struggle that he has with sin. He then, present tense, and he concludes, oh, wretched man that I am, you know, but then he gets into Romans 8 real fast and, you know, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. But he recognized that he was still a great sinner. And, you know, when we are being honest, what, what, what's going on here in Paul's mind, and it should be in our mind as well, that when we look at our, our own sin, we see the mountain of this sin. That's my sin, your sin. You see it, your own sin that way. And when we compare ourselves, each one of us should honestly believe that we are the chief of sinners. You know, I've sometimes joked, and this is just tongue-in-cheek, but I've often said the only thing I don't agree with Paul on is that statement that he's the chief of sinners because I think I am. So I feel like I outdo him. We all should feel that way. And it, it, because when you see your own sin, because you see it up close and personal, you, you don't see it as perfectly as God does, but you see it better than everybody else does. And you see inside... You know the thoughts you have, the feelings you have, the desires you have, the things, the, the things that pull you and tempt you. You know what those are. And so you see the mountain. But when you look at everybody else around you, oh, you see their sin because sometimes it's pretty obvious. But you only see a fraction of it. And Jesus used that same picture, didn't he? He said, okay, so whenever your brother sins, before you go take the what? The log out of his eye? The speck. You've got to take the log out of your own eye first. And you see, he's doing the same thing. Because your own sin should look to you as a log. Now, I know a lot of times we don't look at it that way. We look at, well, I'm the one with the speck and you have the log. Well, that's to go against what Jesus said. You better flip that back around to the truth. Because you need to look at it and you say, well, but, okay, so what they did is they, they got mad at me and started yelling and throwing things at me and, you know, and all I did was tell them that they were stupid. Speck. Jesus would say no. Because I want you to deal with your sin first. Because for you, your sin is worse. And I want you to deal with that. And then, now, you can I can use you to go help them with the speck in their eye. You see, that's the same thing that Paul says. I'm the, I'm the least of all sinners. So our sin must always appear to be much more than that of others around us. 
when we consider how badly we sinned before we were saved, when we think about how we are still struggling with sin, we should not allow those to pull us down into despair. That is not where I'm going. Now, a lot of people will misinterpret when we talk about biblical counseling, and, and biblical counseling deals with sin, and people say, oh, all you're going to do is just tear people down and make them depressed and, and, and you know, discourage them. And No, not at all, because we don't stop there. And that's not what we're doing here. Paul doesn't stop there. They shouldn't pull us down into despair. You've, you've dealt with it wrongly, incompletely, if it leads to despair. He shows us that for him, this led to worship. As he acknowledged, as he was aware of what a sinner he was and is, that led him to worship. When we rightly see how unworthy we are, we can more fully behold how worthy Christ is. That's what we should take away, right? When we see how unworthy we are, we can more fully behold how worthy Christ is. So Paul here expressed a sense of amazement that God would not only choose to use him, but would empower him in ministry. So instead of memories of sin pulling you down into the dumps, those memories should move you to worship. Not worship because of those sins, but worship in amazement that God would save you, that He would use you in His church, that He would empower your ministries. You see, Paul focused on the grace that was given to him. That's what he says here. That's where his confidence came from. It came from the grace that he was given, not from his own abilities. Like, you know, I was trained as a Pharisee, so I know way more than most people about the Bible. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm such a good thinker and I'm very logical. And No, not at all. His confidence did not come from any of that. His confidence came from purely the grace of God that was given to him. And did you notice how he called, what he called the good news? What was it that he was given to preach? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Beautiful term. Because what he's been telling us is that the Gentiles now experience what believing Jews were able to experience through Christ, through the gospel. The unfathomable riches of Christ. This wealth in Christ, he calls it unfathomable because it's so vast that man cannot measure the whole of it. Because that wealth in Christ is infinitely complex and intricately beautiful, we'll never be able to exhaust our discovery of its radiance. And so what he's talking about here is not just the fact that it's so infinite, but that it is so complex and intricate in its beauty, in its glory, that we will never be able to get to the end of it. And so that's the, what he's describing, how he's describing the riches of Christ. Now, what are these riches, or, or might translate it this, wealth of Christ? Well, it includes the truth of Christ, the salvation that he secured for all of us uh, who trust in him, uh, think here, the spiritual blessings of chapter 1, verse 3, all the spiritual blessings, he says, that we've been given in Christ. And Or you could look at it, it's all of Ephesians 1 and 2, plus, you know, lots of other places, but that's what's on his mind right here. It's 
the fact that God saved us, that He gave us new life. Remember, we talked about regeneration. Placed us in Christ, how wonderful that is. And then what he, he talked about there in the last part of chapter 2 is that God would make us into His own personal dwelling place. And those are the riches of Christ that He has on His mind right now. So that was the first aspect of the ministry God had given him. The second is this. Though unworthy, Paul was given grace to disclose the mystery of the church. Even though he was unworthy, he was given grace to disclose the mystery of the church. Verse 9. He goes on there, the second part. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So his second responsibility was this. And there were others too, but here's two that he's bringing out in this. He was to disclose the mystery that had been hidden for all the Old Testament period. That mystery, again, is that Gentiles, as Gentiles, when they come to faith in Christ, they become part of the church. They don't have to become a Jew first. They, They remain a Gentile even though they are now in the church. And he says here that, Part of his job was to bring that to light, the Greek word photizo, and you might hear uh, references, you know, like to photography and photosynthesis, you know, words that have to do with light, and it means to bring to light, to shine light on something. And that's what he's describing here. This gives us a wonderful picture for both evangelism and teaching. Both the two things he has in his mind of what he's been doing. He's been shining the light of the gospel, but he's also shining light on the truth of Christ in his teaching to the churches. See, both evangelism and teaching uh, bring to light what God has revealed to mankind through his word. In evangelism, we shine the light of the good news on those who are in darkness. And so keep this, go back to the picture of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Okay, we find those, if you will, at the cross. Okay, and so people who are lost are stumbling around in darkness, right? It's the way the the scripture pictures them. And that's the idea that's going on here. So people regularly stumble around and they run into the cross. They stumble into the cross, but they can't see what it is. They don't know what it is and what the point of it is. It's just an obstacle that they run into. That's all the cross is to them. And what about the riches that come with that cross? And of course, you know, I'm not thinking as we get so much here in Tulsa about, you know, actual wealth, but all those wonderful truths and everything we have in Christ... So, with this same picture, they stumble around, they, they run into the cross, and, and they're mad because they, you know, it was a, an obstacle. And, and they, they're stepping on things around them, and they pick them up, and they don't know that these, jewel, these gemstones are gemstones. They think they're just common rocks. Why? Because they're in darkness. Because to them, a gemstone and a, just a common rock are, are the same. That's all it is to them. And if you want to think about coins... Um, to them, it, it, that could be, for all they know, a, a cheap trinket. They can't tell the difference. And so when they, when you tell, you know, when they hear about Christ, when they, they hear about the cross, and all, to them, because they're, they're in darkness, it's just an obstacle 
some ordinary rocks and cheap trinkets. But what we do in evangelism is that we shine light on those four people so that they can see the, the beauty of what Christ accomplished on that cross. That it's a way of salvation to those who believe rather than just a, something to stumble over. That these, these are not common rocks. These are gemstones of wonderful value. And coins of value. You see that that we're we're shining the light on them, so that they can see that's what we're doing in the gospel when we share the gospel. It's similarly, in teaching, in in teaching, I include counseling and discipleship. We shine light on God's light on passages, so that people can better understand them and know how to apply them. So. You don't need me or one of the other elders to get up here and tell you what the Bible means. You can read it and you know what it means. Paul already said that earlier in the passage. You'll know this mystery. You'll understand it when you read what I wrote. That's all you have to do, read it. But what we do in teaching is we help you to understand the depth of what he's trying to say and what do I do with that? And we help to guide you in it. So we're shining light on it again. This fotizo. The truth that Gentiles became part of the church was once hidden in God. And here's some some deep theology Paul's getting into. Because he's talking about in the, the mind of God and the, the secret part of God. Um, the His <clears throat> secret counsel, if you will. This was always there in God's mind. The fact that the church would be, and the church would be made up of Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles. Okay? That's always been in the mind of God. He just didn't choose to tell us yet until the apostles came along. So Jesus gave this over to the apostles to then give to the church. And to explain it to them. So it was hidden in God, in His mind. And in His mind are all of His plans for all the ages. And we remember we saw back in chapter 1, verse 11, very important verse for our theology, <clears throat> that God sovereignly works all things after the counsel of His will. That's that secret counsel of God. That He works and He, he chooses as He wills to let us know what that is. And He works everything according to that. And that includes what he's talking about here, the church. <clears throat> My point is that the church was not plan B. And I know sometimes when theologians and pastors are trying to explain the way God worked, it's like, well, you know, plan A was that that he would offer the... Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, and he'd offer the kingdom to Israel, but, oh, they, re- they rejected it, so God had to go to plan B. Not at all. That was always plan A. Plan A was that he would, Jesus the Messiah would come, they would reject him, and then God would bring Jews and Gentiles together in the church. That's plan A. It's always been plan A. <clears throat> That's what Paul's trying to get at here, and we're going to see even more. He says here, too, at the end of verse 9, God who created all things. And his point in that is that God planned creation, the original creation, and he accomplished it 
by His sovereign power, so too He planned this thing He created called the church. And He accomplished it. The same God who had the power to create everything we see also had the power and the plan to create this church. And, and I mean, not just GBC, but, you know, the church, you know, that will, all of the saints of all the ages will be together. But we are the, the local, a local um, meeting of that church. Now, <clears throat> going to number two, verses 10 and 11. God intends for the church to display His multifaceted wisdom. That's why God did all this. That's why Paul's telling us what this... This is why God chose to take unworthy people and use them as servants in His church. And why he, what, it, what it was is to, for the church to display His multifaceted wisdom. Verse 10. In order that... See, he's explaining himself. This is why in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So God chooses to unfold His plan on His own schedule, and He does it in ways and times in order to best display the incredible depth of His wisdom. And we talked earlier about this word wisdom in an earlier passage, we saw there that God's wisdom ranges from theoretical knowledge. He knows all there is to know. And He has all, if you will, theoretical knowledge. But also it's practical application. So He knows everything there is to know, but He also knows the best way to accomplish what the best thing is. You see, so God knows what is the best way for Him, or the best thing for Him to do, that's to display His wisdom. But he also knows the best way to do that, to work through, believe it or not, the church, believe it or not, made up of people like you and me. None of us would have ever made that up. The best way to manifest, to display God's wisdom is to take broken sinners like you and me and put us all together into a, which is right now, a broken organism if you, in a lot of ways that Jesus is working on on sanctifying. Who would ever thought that that would be the, the wisest way to, for God to display His wisdom? Well, God did. <clears throat> Paul adds an adjective to that, and the, the NAS has manifold wisdom. <clears throat> That's a compound word, and what they did is they took the word many and a word for rich colors that are woven together and put those together. And this word was used of Joseph's many-colored coat or multicolored coat back in Genesis 37. <clears throat> it was used of complex embroidery. It's, it was used of multicolored flowers, for example. So what he's saying is that God's wisdom has many facets, many facets of intricate beauty. It is multifaceted wisdom. And so do you, you see that these two beautiful descriptions that he gives us, you know, the unfathomable riches of Christ and now this multifaceted wisdom of God. Because Paul is just amazed. And he keeps being amazed in this. 
And you can see, you know, he's got that prayer on pause, but it's in the back of his mind. And, and that prayer is wanting to burst into praise. And, you know, and we've all read probably the end of chapter 3 where they just burst into the most glorious praise. Right? And, and that's because all of this is percolating in his brain. Unfathomable, unfathomable riches of Christ. Multifaceted wisdom. What Paul's doing is he's opening a spectrum of beauty and majesty here so that it will boost our worship, bring us to worship in amazement. In amazement, knowing that a significant part of our mission as the church is to display God's multifaceted wisdom. That is part of our marching orders. That is what we are to do. That's why we do the things we do. And that's why when we think about, okay, you know, you know, what about our mission as a church? Well, that, it has to be, that has to be part of it. That's what we're doing. Everything that we decide to do as a church, especially in the worship service, it, it has to meet those criteria. And there's others as well, but this is what Paul's focusing on here. When the church pursues the mission God has given us, we show how wise He is. When we do what we're supposed to do as a church, we show how wise he is. That's why we don't go trying to brainstorm and come up with our own wisdom. Okay, what would be... People do that all the time. It's a temptation, I know. Well, if we just did this, you know, well, you know, corporations have found that they, you know, do better if they, you know, let's do that. No, we do what God told us to do and we will show how wise he is. Ah, but John, it doesn't make sense to, you know, use sinners and put them all together in a church and then display wisdom through that. I know it doesn't make sense, but it does to God. And He knows what He's doing. And we trust Him. This, This phrase, through the church, it's amazing that God would do that. So, we're put on display you know, like, nah, we got walls here and the doors are shut and people out there can't see us. We're on display and the people we're on display for, they can see us. He said it's these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who would that be? Well, I think it's both the holy and the evil spiritual beings, angels, for example. God is showing all of them how wise he is and he's doing it through the church and he said okay i want you all angels and demons you all pull up a chair and i want you to watch this church not just gbc but the whole church i want you to watch it and i want you to see how wise i am that's what god is wanting for them to do he's making his wisdom known to them putting his wisdom on display by what he's doing in the church this is astounding God chose to do it through us. I mean, you know, that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that these angels, they long to look into all of this. They're like, what are you doing, Lord? You know, you know, holy angels, we haven't sinned. You know, I would think you'd use us. Not sinners. I know they're saved. They're still sinners, right? One writer said that the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. I thought that was good. That's what we are. We're we're the graduate school for angels, so they're learning from us, believe it or not. Okay, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there, that's proof of what I was saying, that the church is not plan B. 
It was the eternal purpose. That's what drove all of this, is God's eternal purpose. This was always the plan. The church of Jesus Christ is central to God's plan in history. Why? Because Christ Jesus our Lord that he talks about here is central. He is the center of it all. And so where does, how does that bring us in? Because our job is to make him known. Right? And so that's why the church is central to his plan in history. Now, number three, we are provided confidence before God and encouragement in trials. Through all, through all this we've been talking about, we're provided confidence before God and encouragement in, verse, in, in trials. Verse 12, in whom, Jesus, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And again, this is amazing. We have this boldness. That this boldness we've we've seen talked about before. It is bold, free, and open speech. We've been talking about that in Sunday school, right? Having that to be able to speak openly and honestly to God. How can we do that? And 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 then the next word he talks about access, and we looked at that word, and that word was used of if a king in ancient times was to give you uh, free access to come into his to before his throne. Not just anybody could say, "I want to go talk to the king today," and you know he's got an open door policy. They didn't have open door policies back then. Okay, so he had to say, "Oh, you can come in," and so usually they tell you when, but. A few people, they might say, okay, you can come in any time. But the king had to tell you that first. Well, but we, we noted then as well that the king of kings is our father and Jesus our savior. See, we Jesus has made this way, this access, this open access to God, our father. You see, to the king because he's our father. And, and what he's saying is that we can go and talk openly and frankly. Now, there's still yes and fear of God. There's still respect. That has to be there. So, yes, you can make your complaints to God, as the psalmists do, but it's still done with respect, because he's, he's God. But we can be frank with him. We can be open and honest with him. We can say, Lord, this hurts, and I can't see how this is good. I know you're good. I believe that. I just can't see how that is. That's open and honest. How can we talk like that to God? Because Jesus has made the way for us. He has provided for us... To have this kind of access to God, this kind of boldness with God. It is through faith in Jesus. Now, verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So, what Paul, he's trying to encourage them with all of this. And so he says here at the end that don't lose heart at the fact that I'm suffering because it's for your glory. And you're like, what does that mean? Okay, and you, you probably read through that and it, you know, okay, I'm scratching my head. Okay, so here, let's get the flashlight out. I'm going to shine light on this passage. What he's talking about here, he said, remember guys, I'm in prison, right? And that's what his suffering refers to. He's in prison. And he says, I don't want you to lose heart at the fact that I'm in prison because it's to your glory. And like, how is it to my glory? Well, guess how I got into prison? Remember, we talked about that, I think it was last time, right? What got Paul into prison this time? He was talking to the Jews because they were mad at him. And he was trying to preach to them. And they were, they were okay for a little bit until he said, 
Jesus told me to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's when they lost it. You remember that? They're like, oh, no, no, you, you don't take the gospel to the Gentiles. You tell Gentiles to become a Jew and then we'll give them the gospel. And Paul said, no, no, that's not the way. It's not what Jesus told me to do. They lost it. He's arrested. He appeals to Caesar and then now he's in Rome. In prison for them. He says, it's your glory because I'm suffering because I brought the gospel to you. You see, that's how it is their glory. His suffering is our glory because we have that same gospel from Paul in his letters, right? And we should be encouraged. You might think about your sins before you were saved and say, I'm unworthy to serve God. Or you may think about how you still wrestle with sin and say, I'm unworthy to serve God. And so far, you're, you're okay. But if you conclude from that, that God can't use you or won't use you, you're wrong. That is not true. Paul's an example of that. He wants us to be encouraged. You see, the fact that Paul was unworthy... The fact that I'm unworthy and the fact that you all are unworthy, that's the plan. Do you get that? And so I know, you know, you think about what a sinner you were, you think about what a sinner you are. And I don't mean your sinning is the plan, but the fact that you are unworthy, that's the plan. Why? Because... When God works through us, the church, we can't legitimately say, oh, it's because we, you know, our church, we're smarter than others. You know, we're better. We have better, we have more theology, better theology. It's not because of all, you know, even the things we do right. It's not because of that. It's not because, you know, let's let's just pretend that our theology is 100% right. It's probably not right. But we're, we're hopefully close. That isn't why God uses us. Now, yes, we need to have it. as You know, try to be 100% right as best we can. But that isn't why God uses us. He uses us because we're unworthy. Why? Because then we can't claim the glory. And the angels look at that and they say, Lord, I, I wasn't so sure you were going to be able to pull that off. I mean, you're working with those people? I mean, they're they're hard to deal with. You send us down there to minister to them, and they're tough. But they will say, Wow, Lord, your wisdom is amazing. I would have never thought that you would be able to show us how wise you are by working through them. And God would say, Now you're getting it. That's what He's doing. Using unworthy servants in his church, God is putting his multifaceted wisdom on display. So I know there are times we don't get things right. And we have our own issues, our own struggles. But don't be discouraged by that. That's part of the plan because God will reveal his wisdom through our weakness. 
Be encouraged to serve God wholeheartedly because in your weakness, His grace will prove strong. That is the point. If God could powerfully use Paul from prison, He can use you and me in our weaknesses. Be encouraged by that. As we come to the Lord's table, let's in our minds go to those unfathomable riches of Christ. As I said earlier, we find many of those riches at the cross. We find the basis for all of those riches at the cross because it's what Christ did for us in our place. He secured all of of the riches. And I don't mean, you know, just all the fun stuff, you know, of, of life. I don't mean that. But the things we talked about, salvation in Christ, truth in Christ, and all that goes with it. The wisdom of God to take a horrible execution device, the cross, and turn it into a storehouse of treasure. Isn't that amazing? That's the wisdom of our God. Man would have never made any of that up. We couldn't have thought of that because we're not God. But that's in His wisdom.